Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we discuss Bruce Lee, martial arts expert, actor, and philosopher. We talk about the impact and influence of Bruce's films, as well as his childhood, spiritual influences, social perspectives, and our thoughts on how his legacy continues to live on in the 21st century. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Style Free Podcast. It's great to be back with you, Papa, as always. Most definitely, Dad. I'm always happy to talk with you and learn more from you and also answer questions that I've had from childhood that sometimes we don't really get to talk about. And just us wanting to talk and have conversations is what led us to this podcast. And I think one pretty cool topic of discussion, at least for me, I think that we could talk about is Bruce Lee. And, you know, I know that being a hip hop artist, how many folks have referenced Bruce Lee or different other Kung Fu and martial arts movies. But I think that my personal connection and, and, admiration of this actor, philosopher, martial arts expert, just all of these things. I think that it really comes from you kind of teaching me about how to grow up and how to be the best man and person that I can be and and also aligning on a certain moral compass. And it's been pretty cool how the older I've gotten and the more I've gone back and watched a lot of Bruce's movies, um, I think the most popular one for us and, and, the, and the one that we probably quote the most is Enter the Dragon. <laughs> but, <true>. um, <laughs> but I mean, just even Fist of Fury, formerly known as Chinese Connection, or uh, The Big Boss and all these other ones, you know, I, I, you know, there was also this purpose in, in some of the message within those movies that you also taught me about as a young kid too. And so for me, I'm curious, like, you know, we'll, we'll dive into these movies and, and our opinions about them and, and the ways in which they've impacted us individually and then also collectively. Um, and, and also shout out to Neil, <laughs> your brother, because, you know, we, we have this little trio of quotes that they, and and just dropping bars from that movie that we often do with one another, um, and you know we'll get to we'll get to Neil in a bit, y'all. But you know for now, I think that you know I'm just my my biggest curiosity is how did you get into Bruce Lee and you know especially as a young black man and what did you take away from his movies and and how did that connect with you on an individual level? Well, first, before I get into talking about my first awareness of Bruce Lee, I wanted to mention that uh, this journey of the Style Free podcast, working with you, uh, has been a real thrill for me. And I found that not only during this podcast, but over the last several years, I've, I've watched how you've grown and developed and how you've become more actualized in terms of finding your own path. And it's been really exciting to watch. And I find that I'm learning from you. Uh, as well. So I want to thank you. And, uh, and I also wanted to say that. Thanks, Dad. Oh, listen, I love you. And so let's, uh, let's keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I became aware of Bruce Lee was in a TV series called The Green Hornet. Uh, that came out in 1966. So I'm 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm watching this guy 
who is supposed to be the assistant, the chauffeur to this newspaper guy named Britt Reed. And first of all, one of the things that occurred to me was this guy, Bruce Lee, can fight. He was fast, (laughs) quick. I mean, he was just taking care of business, you know, left and right. Yeah. And I was like, why is he this guy's assistant? (laughs) You know, I mean, what? what? And I remember that um, one of the things that I was aware of is that this role, there was something about Bruce Lee's role that was not subservient. Even though he assisted this person, even though he was the chauffeur, but you could tell that there was a presence here, someone that you, you, you didn't want to mess with. I mean, he, had, he was comfortable in his own skin yeah. uh, and that he could handle his situation if need be. So you knew that there was just something right underneath the surface, right? And I think that, you know, this is 1966. So there's a lot going on in the world. There's the war in Vietnam. And Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, there was some negativity toward people who were Asian. And I remember that uh, when we were, now this was a number of years later, but I remember that there were some Vietnam vets who would come back and Mm -hmm. we used to play basketball. And the war was still still going on. I'm a, I'm a young teenager by this time. Uh, yeah. But they used to talk to us, you know, about self-defense, martial arts, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in, I'm in high school and I'm checking all this out. And I'm thinking back to Bruce Lee. Uh, I became aware of him around that time in a TV show called Long Street. Uh, Long Street was uh, uh, a TV show where Bruce came in as someone who helped this guy who had been attacked and the guy wanted to, who was blind, Longstreet is blind. He's mm-hmm. like, how can I learn to do what you do? And Bruce is like, that's okay. <laughs> you know, I helped you out and don't worry about it. And this guy, but the guy is obviously he's sincere. He's honest and he's willing to let go of some of his preconceptions Yeah, because it, it comes back to knowledge of self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from the 1960s, when you're thinking about what was going on in Vietnam War, also there was the civil rights movement. So you had the Black Panthers, you had Martin Luther King, you had Malcolm X, you had, you know, and and everything that followed in his wake. And, you know, people and and the women's rights, the protests against the war in Vietnam, uh, all of this is happening at the same time. And so people are beginning to, you can hear it in the music, Mm -hmm. you know, people are, are reaching for something that is more real, uh, more authentic, you know, in their being. And they were finding different ways of doing this. And this has happened also in the United States, other countries as well. But in the West, certainly there was this interest in things related to the East. People started getting further into doing yoga, meditation, the Beatles seeking uh, enlightenment, uh, greater consciousness, meeting people like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, there were people like Jiddu Krishnamurti. There was, of course, Thomas Merton. Uh, there were um, other religious, spiritual individuals, and people were looking for answers. They felt that, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on in their society and the way that society had been constructed and the boxes in which people had been placed was no longer satisfying, was no longer authentic. And this movement of freedom, this spirit of throwing off colonialism by you know any country, but certainly many of the countries in the West that had mm-hmm. colonized Africa, 
Um, There was this burgeoning need and and spirit of actualizing their own reality uh, in in their potential. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Bruce Lee comes in at a time when this is all taking place and that he, in his own way, embodies this spirit. Now, here's a person who was born in San Francisco. Um, His father was a Cantonese opera star. And uh, so... (laughs) Like a yes, that's right. In, in in Hong Kong. So he was doing performing and uh, mm. different types of things on the stage. Yeah. And so they were doing a different tour. style of opera, I guess, than the, yes. than the, yes. than the traditional one we <laughs> the, think of. Yeah. And they traveled to the United States. And during their tour, that's when Bruce was born. So that's why he was born in San Francisco as opposed to Hong Kong. Now, the family wow. eventually went back to Hong Kong, you know, once the tour had, had been done. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Bruce came from, you know, a family of some means. And so therefore, you don't have a situation where, you know, there's somebody who's necessarily wanting it in terms of material things. Yeah. Uh, but he was also a rebel. And ever since he was a little kid, you know, his family members said he had this sort of fighting spirit. <laughs> and, uh, and so eventually he got into, um, you know, street fighting and gangs and so forth. And apparently he was going up against this uh, this other rival. Uh, well, first, let's back up. There's a term for guys who were um, troublemakers back in England in the 1950s. They used to dress a certain type of way, and they were called the Teddy Boys. Because the, the British uh, ruled Hong Kong, there were a group of Chinese who also, you know, followed that particular pattern as well. But basically, you know, they were into rock and roll and, uh, you know, they wore their clothes in a certain kind of way, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. a certain kind of style. And, uh, you know, when they were, they were into a lot of things that, you know, included certain forms of violence and so forth. And these are kids who grew up out of, uh, you know, they were like the ones who grew up after their parents had been in the Second World War. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of them had been left you know, to themselves, and they developed their own, you know, subculture, uh, yeah. as it were. Yeah. And and yes, there was also some that were involved with all kinds of racism and so forth. Uh, like a less, you know, sadistic version of Clockwork Orange? Mm. Unpack that. Well, I, I mean, I'm just asking, like, because you're saying, like, they, they, they're all dressing in, you know, like, in a certain style, and they're listening to certain music, and they have this subculture, and, like, Clockwork Orange was, like, these you know, these little groups of uh, are also kind of like that too. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. but they were also doing like racist and like crazy violent stuff in the streets. And, you know, some groups of them, including the one that the movie was around kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, to answer that question, I, I have to go and revisit um, right. Clockwork Honors, which, which by the way, I did see when it came out, <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately I don't remember it. Uh Anyway, but if you think about that idea of subculture and how you dress and so forth, you can make an association with styles of dressing in the United States, like the Zoot Suit. Yeah. We talked about the Zoot Suit riots and what was going on there where Latinos were wearing a certain kind of outfit, which, you know, been popularized by African-Americans. You know, when you see Cab Calloway dressing a certain way. So yeah, the point is, and, is that... the young Malcolm the, X and... Exactly, <laughs> and exactly. the movie, Yeah. yeah. So, so this idea of ruffians and guys who are looking for trouble and so forth, that kind of environment is part of what Bruce Lee was growing up in. 
And as I say, even though that was not his family background, but that's something that he gravitated to because, first of all, he was bullied, you know. And, and sometimes the British, they, they would bully the Chinese. Oh, yeah. You know? And so as a way, basically, to protect oneself, <laughs> he had his gang. And then um, he met this guy who was in another gang. And they squared off and the guy bested him. And that forced Bruce to have to now go and be part of this guy's gang. Right, right. And so he was like, oh, OK, you know, uh, I see, you know, I, I gave you the respect and so forth. Meanwhile, he's like saying, what's this guy into? Where's he learning this stuff from? And he finds out that the guy was, you know, with it, man, you know. Yeah, said, yeah. Oh, snap. OK, bet. So now he goes and starts studying with it, man. And, you know, the rest goes on, you know, from yeah. there. That's so cool because that reminds me so much of a show that was based on Bruce's writings and notes and concept called Warrior. And oh, that's the one that was put together by his daughter? Shannon? Yeah, yeah, I think that she she has a hand, she had a hand in, in the creative that. yeah aspect of it for sure. Yeah, it's it's really cool, and just even what you described, I'm like, oh, I see how they kind of reflected and emulated, you know, certain aspects of the story you just shared in that show too. So that's pretty cool. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, wow. and so of course now he's with Ip Man, and you know, so he's studying Wing Chun, mm-hmm. and um, you know, he's learning what he can through this, and then. By the late 50s, because he had U.S. citizenship, you know, because he was born in San Francisco, he was able to go to the United States. And so he was there. He stayed, I believe he stayed with his sister, Agnes, for a period of time, uh, who was living, I think, in San Francisco. And then he enrolled at the University of Washington in Seattle. And that's how he got connected up there in Seattle. And he was studying philosophy. Studying philosophy. Well, that's what the philosophy stuff comes into play. That's I mean, where it comes I'm sure play. that there was also other, you know, various traditions and stories and narratives that he was brought up in as well. But to mm-hmm. formalize it, I guess, more specifically, that yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah, it was. And as I said, one of the people that he um, uh, studied and learned about you know, in terms of philosophy was um, Jiddu Krishnamurti. And mm-hmm. Krishnamurti was somebody, interestingly enough, that, that I studied. I was taking a philosophy class and we were studying uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and, you know, other figures. But I met this gentleman who was a Vietnam war veteran. Mm-hmm. Uh, you called him BG. Mm-hmm. And he had this, this great room. I mean, everybody, we had dorm rooms, right? And yeah. they had the regular dorm beds and the dorm walls. And, uh, but this <laughs> yeah, guy, yeah. he had curtains he had drapery <laughs> hanging from the ceilings. He had low lamps. He had little table, coffee tables. He yeah. had a rug. I mean, he knew how to do it up. He knew how to do it up. And he had books lined with books, mm-hmm. you know, on philosophy, on religion, you know, spirituality and so forth. And he had been, I think he had a purple heart or something. Wow. So he had been through, he had been through a lot. And yeah. so we would hang out, I think one or two other people. Really, really great guy. And uh, he, he introduced me to Krishnamurti, as well as some other uh, writers, uh, Gurdjieff and um, a woman named Jane Roberts, who had the, the Seth books, the whole series of Seth. And so that's when I started, you know, looking at other types of things beyond what I was 
necessarily learning, you know, in terms of Socrates and Plato. This was part of that that movement of, of discovery, self-discovery that was expanding, you know, from the 1960s, you know, onward. Yeah. I mean, obviously this had existed for <laughs> many years before this, but this is the period in which I'm coming up and learning and acquiring in some of this information. So Krishnamurti is, is really interesting as he comes up in Bruce Lee's experience because he's one of the people who he was designated as like the world teacher. He came out of the theosophical movement because his father was a follower of uh, Helena Blavatsky and Annie Besant and many of the other leaders of the theosophical movement, which was started in New York City in 1875, which was really kind of an amalgamation, a distillation, a variety of different Christian mysticism and uh, Eastern religions and so forth. And um, out of this mix, there was some of the members that felt that the energy of the earth, the wisdom of the earth could be encapsulated in in a figure, in a human being. And after observing this young young man who was essentially taking classes and being cared for in certain respects because his mother had died when he was about 10 years old, mm-hmm. uh, he was identified as the person who would be best to embody this world teacher. And oh, so wow. he kind of followed, he kind of followed that path. Now there had been many other uh, Swami Vivekananda you know, who was friends with uh, with Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. You think about people like Albert Einstein. You think about Paramahansa Yogananda, who was yeah. also friends with Korla Pandit and uh, <laughs> so many other individuals. And so this is, again, part of this, this wave of people who were searching for answers. Now, some of it kind of delved into vanity opportunities and it kind of strayed away from, I think, the, the idealistic nature behind the impulse. So at a certain point, Krishnamurti said, I think it was 1929 or so, there was this, this event where he basically denounced the whole idea of him being that world leader. Mm. Uh, he said, no, this is, this is not me. Yeah. Um, and so I thought of this. That's, that's a heavy weight to kind of try to carry where all these people are then dignifying you a world teacher. And then you have this responsibility, <laughs> like the world teacher? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, anybody would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of good on this <laughs> at a yes. certain point. Yeah, I'm going to give you a quote that I found of Krishnamurti that when he made that statement and he basically said, I maintain that truth is a pathless land and you cannot approach it by any path whatsoever, by any religion, by any sect. That is my point of view. And I adhere to that absolutely and unconditionally. Truth being limitless, unconditioned, unapproachable by any path whatsoever cannot be organized, nor should any organization be formed to lead or coerce people along a particular path. This is no magnificent deed because I do not want followers. And I mean this, the moment you follow someone, you cease to follow truth. I am not concerned whether you pay attention to what I say or not. I want to do a certain thing in the world and I'm going to do it with unwavering concentration. I am concerning myself with only one essential thing, to set man free. I desire to free him from all cages, from all fears, and not to found religions, new sects, nor to establish new theories and new philosophies. Wow. That's a, that's a powerful statement yeah. by somebody who has renounced this, this effort to try to make him the superstar. 
Yeah, yeah. And Bruce, in, in one of his interviews, said, you know, I don't believe that I'm a superstar. I don't believe in all of that. You know, mm-hmm. Bruce basically talked about the family of humanity, right? That under, under the sky, there's only one human family. And yeah. so he wanted to dispel all of these different potential traps and things that people can fall into by being the savior of this or the savior of that or putting so much ego into it. That's not that he didn't have, obviously he had ambition and so forth. Right, um, right. But to lose sight of, in the sense of kind of balance, not to lose sight of the fact that the individual that you observe, you know, is yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, see. So I think that Bruce Lee use this particular vehicle of what's called martial arts as a vehicle through which he could discover more of who he was and to actualize more of who he was. And what he offered was, through his own example, the opportunity for others to, that they could also achieve this for themselves. Yeah. And, and how something might manifest if Bruce does it, that's the truth of Bruce, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. You know? how you take certain principles or certain elements and put them together, you will express the truth and actuality and the authenticity of you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that freeing up from dogma, as it were, is one of the things that also became very challenging and a threat to establish, you know, norms, as it yeah. were. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I loved watching Bruce do his thing, like I say, on Long Street, where in Long Street he's wearing a tracksuit, okay? <laughs> All right? yeah, Which is yeah. what we would see later on when he Game was in death. the Game of Death. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right? And I think the Long Street series was between 1971 and 72, at least Bruce's appearance on, on, that, on that series. Mm-hmm. So the Game of Death was being produced while. I think it was in late 72 into 70, early 73 or so, something like that. Whenever. Um, but they had to stop production because that's when the breakthrough came to do Enter the Dragon. Oh, wow. Which okay. came out in 1973. Wow. So it was never finished. I didn't so, realize that. I didn't like, so I knew that Game of Death came out after Bruce died and, you know, shout it out. It came to out in 78, by the way. But you're going to shout out to... uh, To Kareem (laughs) Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. Yep. I was watching that fight, you know, a couple weeks ago. And I was like, man, like, first of all, like, Kareem is a legit seven footer. Like, there's people like in the NBA that get listed as seven foot, but they're like, you know, six, nine, six, ten with sneakers on, you know, Mm. and then they get, you know, put up a seven foot. But Kareem is a legit, you know, seven footer. And, you know, squaring up against Bruce, it's, you know, it's pretty cool to see that disparity in height (laughs) going up against one another in a fight scene because you definitely don't get to see that, especially between two people who are actually trained in it. Like there aren't many seven footers Mm. that are, you know, formally trained in martial arts. So, yeah, that's true. And and just just to show. So Kareem is, you know, a seven footer, as you say, Bruce is about five, seven, five, eight. Mm -hmm. All right. So so you can see. At certain angles, you know, they they it was designed to 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 increase that sense of the, yeah, the distance, yeah, you know, between sure. the two. But but Kareem was legitimate because he was an actual student of Bruce. Bruce, yeah, right? he was an actual <laughs> student of Bruce. He's going out there to UCLA to study, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's basketball, right, with with Coach Wooden, and 
I think he had practiced some type of martial arts, might have been a keto or something to that effect Mm -hmm. uh, beforehand. I may be wrong about that, but he came, though, to uh, California with some background in martial arts. Mm -hmm. And apparently he was asking somebody around, you know, well, who do you know who I could continue my lessons with? They said, well, there's this guy (laughs) and he's got the, you know, he's offering (laughs) lessons. He's teaching everything. So he said, all right, well, let me check this guy out. And boom, it went on from there. Wow. Yeah. So that was before both of them really had, you know, the the sense of fame that they ended up getting at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I didn't realize it. Was, I thought it was like, you know, Bruce is already famous and he's taken on different, you know, students from Hollywood and Kareem ends up being one of those students and all. But I didn't realize that it was kind of before well, both of them was, were really Hollywood. I mean, Kareem had a status for sure in college and, um, you know, as Lou Alcindor and all that, you know, he balling out for UCLA. And, and you know, shout out to his work in the Rucker as well. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't realize that their relationship and connection kind of predated the the peaks of their fame. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Bruce was already starting to rise, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was there. Sometimes Kareem would, uh, you know, babysit little Brandon, you know, <laughs> you know, That's who crazy. in his own right potentially was also becoming an incredible presence, you know, on the screen. Yes, he had the name Lee, you know, mm-hmm. but but he was also trained by his father. Yeah. Brandon was, you yeah. know, as a kid, he learned how to express himself well, being himself. And so he wasn't his father. He was himself, but he was yeah. authentically himself. Yeah. And he's yeah. very comfortable and confident in that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so Kareem, interestingly, is also a thinker, also a writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And I think they both recognized and appreciated the intelligence of, of one another, that yeah. they were both lifelong seekers. Now, yeah. Kareem eventually would become a Muslim mm-hmm. uh, and he went through some uh, soul searching, even through that process. Mm-hmm. But regardless of religion, you know, Bruce was not about well, you have to become a Buddhist or you have to become this or that yeah. or the other. Be who you are, find your truth. And if the vehicle through which you you connect with that truth, the deeper truth mm-hmm. you know, of who you are and the larger picture that you're connected to, if it's through this particular path, then you do that. But it's to recognize that, as I say, connected to something much bigger. Yeah. Right? Therefore, yeah. there's no separation. Mm-hmm. You know, there are unique qualities, mm-hmm. you know, that distinguish this and that, like with people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? We're not all the same. We, we're not all act the same. You know, we, we're unique. But yet to be able to recognize the humanity in one another, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, most definitely. You mentioned also this being around like the early 70s and stuff. So this is also the time that he's doing his pre-Enter the Dragon trilogy, you know, with Big Boss and Fists of Fury um, the one with Chuck Norris where they're fighting in the Coliseum, um, away of the dragon. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So like, I think that's all stuff that I think is like really cool. One, I, I really appreciated all those movies and enjoyed them, but you can also see rewatching them in my twenties and thirties and just seeing them so many times now. It's like, oh, like I can see the growth in not just him as a star and everything like that, but also the quality of the movies and his mm. 
expansion and being able to choreograph the fights and being like the action director and things like that. It's really cool just, I guess, seeing that progression in such a short period of time because all those movies came out within like four, five years from each other. Yeah, 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 that's true. And I think that The Way of the Dragon was the first movie that he actually controlled a lot. Like you say, the action scenes and And that's that's the one with, with Chuck, right? That's right, with Chuck yeah. Norris. And they're in this Colosseum, like this, the Roman Colosseum. Mm-hmm. And, and he rips off the chest hair. Chest hair. <laughs> <laughs> and that cat is like walking around too. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, that was that was pretty awesome. And, and it showed the respect also that he had, you know, at the end of the spoiler alert, when he lays um, Chuck's belt. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, no, that was, that was really, uh, that was a good one. I, I, I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And also, you can tell that the influence of Bruce, you know, has continued on. I, I, before I get to that, I wanted to say that, that thinking about this idea of Bruce as a sidekick to mm. the Green Hornet. Yeah. It made me think about other characters, too, who were sidekicks. Now, what's interesting is that there was a radio program back in the 1930s, and it was called The Green Hornet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the same character? It is the same character. Yes, and there is a Cato. Oh, okay. That's right. And um, in, there was a, a movie, a film series that came out, and it was uh, also The Green Hornet. Because back in the 1930s and 40s, radio was it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, you had the films and you had some of the series and you had uh, Flash Gordon and stuff like that. But a lot of people were very much tuned into before the advent of large commercial television. That's mm-hmm. where people would tune in. Mm-hmm. And so they had a program that was called the Green Hornet. Yeah. And the Green Hornet had a Cato character as well. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that the person who played the Cato role was an actor by the name of Key Luke. Key Luke was Chinese American, okay, mm-hmm. like like Bruce. Right? Yeah. And he would later on play the role of Charlie Chan's number one son. Now, that's again taking Asian characters. He, I think to some people, was an effort to try to break away from a certain kind of stereotype of a Chinese person. Mm. They're like how black actors would take on certain personas, certain roles, and so forth. It was like a foot in the door, you know, and then they would move on. And then the next generation, the next person come along would try to open that door a little bit more, a little bit more. Yeah. And I think it was that way also with Key Luke. Now, what's interesting is that Key Luke would then go on to play Master Po in a TV series called Kung Fu. Kung Fu. (laughs) And the story behind Kung Fu is that the original story was brought to Hollywood by Bruce Lee yeah. as the warrior. Yeah. Yep. Wow. And they could not find it within their own system to have an Asian American as the star of this TV program. Hence David Carradine. Then David Carradine comes blows in. up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace. So Bruce goes back to Hong Kong, starts working with a number of producers and you know, Raymond Chow and Golden Harvest. And Mm -hmm, he -hmm. starts in 1971, his own production company, Concord Productions, along with Raymond Chow. Oh, wow. Bruce is handling the creative part of it and Raymond, the business part of it. 
And so uh, the Way of the Dragon was part of that. And also Enter the Dragon. Yeah. Yeah. And I and think that's, that's all, the movie right there. And that's that is the, the movie right there. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm thinking about, about um, the way that African-Americans gravitated toward Bruce Lee. You know, yeah. like other individuals, I'm watching now all these martial arts movies go yeah. down to the Deuce, 42nd mm-hmm. Street, right? <laughs> go to the Dale Theater and go to RKO Fordham in the Bronx, go to the Riverdale Cinema, right? That's yeah. why I saw Enter the Dragon about eight times, right? <laughs> all right? Eight times. Yeah. You know? In those days, you know, you could just keep going and see. Yeah, yeah, just kind of stay in the movie theater <laughs> and the just movie, go again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I kept doing it. I mean, I even, as a kid, I saw Bullet, right? Oh, that's cool, with Steve McQueen. With Steve McQueen. Yeah. Now, here's something interesting. I love the, the movie Bullet, but yeah. I also liked Mission Impossible. I also liked Mannix. It was my two, two of my favorite detective shows. Yeah, right? yeah. Now, the person who is the common denominator of Bullet, and and all of that is the music, Lalo Schifrin. Lalo Schifrin, yeah. right, 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 from Argentina. Wow, and, yeah. And Lalo, Lalo, after he got finished playing, you know, he went to Paris and studied there, was playing uh, jazz for a while, mm-hmm. comes back to the U.S., and um, he connects up with Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, wow. And he writes some music for Dizzy Gillespie. Mm-hmm. And Dizzy then takes him on as a piano player, you know? <laughs> now, he's creating this music which has a different kind of tempo. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, it's like, what? Yeah. That's crazy. And and the other thing is, is that these time signatures are not common. And I think that that's probably one of the things that attracted Bruce Lee, because Lalo did the music for Enter the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. And I think that he also was a teacher Mm -hmm. to Steve Mm -hmm. McQueen, Mm -hmm. who starred Mm -hmm. in Bullet. Mm-hmm. So the roots that culminate in what you know is Enter the Dragon mm-hmm. come from his relationships and associations with people in Hollywood, with the James Coburns and, mm-hmm. and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a huge and remained a huge jazz fan. Jazz fan, yeah. So yeah. when they would get together and chop it up, I mean, for a period of time, Bruce Lee was living in Oakland in the 60s, yeah. Yeah. right? So the environment, mm-hmm. right? He was absorbing these things. Some of his first students were African-American, right? And he was criticized for not strictly teaching to Asian students. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, he had students of all backgrounds, mm-hmm. right? And so he wasn't restrictive that way. And I think that that's one of the things that many African-Americans appreciate is that he was somebody who challenged racism. Like, for example, in one of his movies where he kicks the sign that says, no dogs or Chinese allowed Oh, yeah, that's in the um, park. Fist of Fury. It's the Fury, yeah. right? And in one interview, I remember Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said that he was telling, because Kareem, as you know, is a historian. And through his studies, he learned about the oppression uh, against the Chinese in their own land by the British. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he was telling Bruce about these signs and these restrictions and so forth. And Bruce, from that conversation, according to Kareem, incorporated that into that particular wow. scene yeah. where he kicks that sign. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah that, that movie was really cool. And and for anybody who might not have seen Fists of Fury, uh, I definitely recommend it. And if you're curious about kind of a, you know, a one-two combo with some martial arts movie, I would suggest watching Jet Li's Fear List first because Jet Li mm-hmm. plays the character of uh, Huo Yuanjia. And in Fists of Fury, Bruce Lee plays a student of <sighs> Huo Yuanjia, uh, you know, after the end or the, the uh, cause I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, you know, for we, we don't want to have two of those <laughs> in this podcast already, but, um, but basically after the events of Fearless would then come the events of Fists of Fury. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and going back again to this idea of the sidekick, it, it also made me think about the Lone Ranger. Mm. Because you oh, have Tonto, right? Yeah, yeah. So now you Tonto have... is the one pointing out where to go and how to get there and everything. <laughs> and, and the Lone Ranger. And, and also thinking about the Lone Ranger was actually, in real life, black. <laughs> Bass well, Reeves. See, Bass Reeves, right? Yeah. Right? And it's like, man. Well, well. And, and so so, where, so that's that that whole rewriting. Yeah. Yep. Now, now, Jay Silverheels, who played Tonto, was actually uh, from the Six Nations Indian Reserve in Ontario. Oh, that's good. Canada. Right. So he was, um, I think, identified as Mohawk. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that when they created the radio series, The Lone Ranger, back in the 1930s. Yeah. One of the people who created that particular series is the same person who created the Green Hornet. Oh, wow. And in in the Green Hornet, Britt Reed in the radio series was the grand nephew of the person who's identified as. The Lone Ranger, Get John Reed. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so man. now, now you're on. Now, now, what what Bruce is doing, and he's following this idea about dismantling, reframing history, reframing the whole narrative, wiping mm-hmm. away the whole narrative, creating a new narrative which is more authentic, more real. And I think that that's where a lot of, particularly as a young African-American growing up, I can feel the authenticity in a Bruce. You know, I can identify with that. And then later on, I'm watching my son, you know, watching, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Michelangelo. (laughs) Michelangelo, right. I'm seeing also much later on, of course, Jackie Chan. Yeah. And Chris Tucker in the Rush Hour series, right? Right. And even before that, Drunken Master and Operation Condor and Super Cop and (laughs) Rumble in the Bronx. Like, I remember we we went to. Which was in Canada, by the way. Yeah, no, that was it. I was like, this ain't. (laughs) (laughs) This ain't the Bronx. (laughs) But but I remember we went and saw Rumble in the Bronx in the drive in movie theater in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. That's right. That's right. Super drive in. You remember that? (laughs) It was a double feature with uh twister oh. which is also weird seeing twister in a drive-in because at one point the tornado tears up a drive-in movie theater <laughs> <laughs> right yeah a movie within a movie and the thing is is that of course as everyone knows jackie chan was in enter the dragon yep yep yeah he's the one who get when whenever yeah, they're ah! fighting yep pulls his head back and everything <laughs> you know and apparently they had a good a good, you know, working relationship. Yeah, you know, I think there's actually another movie too where Jackie is a stunt extra in another Bruce film. I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head. It might be Fist of Fury, but mm. it might also be The Big Boss. I can't remember mm. which one, but yeah, Jackie's in, but he gets his, mm. you know, bigger cameo or the more memorable one, obviously, in <laughs> Enter the Dragon. <laughs> yeah. 
So I'm, you know, like many people, I'm sad when Bruce dies. It's like, what? How the heck yeah. can this happen? What? Yeah. 32? Yeah. Yeah, he would have been 32 in, I'm sorry, 33 in November mm-hmm. of, uh, nine, you know, because he was born in 1940, November 27th. Yeah. So uh, he dies July 20th, 1973. The world is mourning. We're like, oh, my gosh. And then the next year, the following year, there's a big hit song, right? Disco's on the rise. Everybody's like, what's everybody doing? Everybody was Kung <laughs> Fu fighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By Carl Douglas, you know, yeah. that was, I mean, that was like a number one hit. Yeah. Right? And you know, what's interesting is that when we think about disco and some of the roots of hip hop, it's interesting how hip hop is sampling, right? And Bruce mm-hmm. Lee, in his own way, was sampling, taking a little bit of this, a little bit of that, using what's useful, throwing out what's not useful, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like remixing, you know? Blending it. And I think that that's also, you know, of course, you can relate that to mixed martial arts later on, so mm-hmm, forth. Mm-hmm, but I mm-hmm. think that there's a certain sensibility, you know, about practicality of putting it all together that relates to hip hop. And then being style free. And style free. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I had to put the plug in there. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Definitely. He was definitely style free. Mm-hmm. Now, here's, here's something just to bring it back to hip hop culture is that, okay. Everybody was kung fu fighting, but right, right. nobody really pays attention to the follow-up song that he did a year later. Carl Douglas did. It was ah. called "Dance the Kung Fu." This I mean, is yeah. 1975. Yeah, that particular that song, uh-huh. right, was sampled by DJ Premier when he did a remix for Nike's 25th Air Force One anniversary. Oh yeah, that, that, that called classic. That, 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 that. Better than I've ever been. Yeah, you know, with, yeah, with, yeah. That's a sample. Yeah, and Nas yeah. and, 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 and KRS. KRS. Yep. <laughs> and, and the God MC. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And with the strings, you know, yep. that yep. all is from Dance the Kung Fu. Oh, wow. So, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Dropping gems this episode. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So, so there's a lot. And, and, you know, Bruce also in his trajectory, you know, in terms of responding to being marginalized, ostracized. I mean, he wouldn't be kept down. Right. Yeah. He couldn't be denied. Yeah. But he's also responding. This is a continuation of things that had gone on in this particular country for many years. Mm-hmm. You know, the Chinese Exclusion Act mm-hmm. in 1882, you know, which was signed by Chester Arthur, you know, who, of course, went on to become one of the presidents of Union College. And uh, this Man. was a prohibition against immigration of many Chinese, particularly Chinese laborers. But various forms of this continued on, mm-hmm. you know, for many, many years. Yeah. And so there's always been this idea of the other, mm-hmm. you know, and I think Bruce represents for, for many people who've been otherized, quote unquote, yeah. this spirit of liberation. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one of the, I think, legacies about Bruce that I think is um, important to keep in mind. Yeah. And it also makes me think, going back to what you were talking about, as far as being style free or you know the concept and the, and the, the philosophies behind Jeet Kune Do um, mm. and how that ended up evolving and helping to inform and create a foundation for you know what you also mentioned as far as mixed martial arts mm-hmm. but 
it also makes me think of that quote of his too. Well, his, probably his most famous quote of, you know, being formless and shapeless like water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can flow or it can crash. You're basically adapting yourself to whatever the situation calls for. Yes. And that is definitely critical whenever it comes to fighting and competition and physical combat. But it is so applicable in every situation just in life. And if you're able to learn yourself enough to be able to adapt and navigate different spaces at different times, um, you're more able to convey your authentic self to anybody, anywhere, at any point. And I think that that also is that very razor-thin line between doing that adaptation of your authentic self and still manifesting and maintaining your authentic self versus code switching. Like, depending on who you're talking to about it or how certain people code switch, the authenticity can either be there or not. But there's a difference between having to do that versus being formless and shapeless. Mm. And Mm. for me, especially, you know, as a black man, there's the adaptability that is necessary to still be me anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, a lot of that was informed by these philosophies and my perception and interpretation of these philosophies that was shared by folks like Bruce Lee, but then a lot of these other, whether it be spiritual or social figures that you also mentioned too. So yeah, at least for me, that's that's kind of how it applies itself in a more day to day fashion, you know, as yeah. a black man in America. Absolutely, absolutely, adaptability. Mm-hmm. That's um, one of the things that Darwin, you know, spoke about. Right, because adaptability is survivability. Like you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're able to yeah. adapt and navigate, mm-hmm. then you're gonna be what survives and is able to then pass on how to adapt and navigate and and make it through mm-hmm. this wild world. For the next people who are coming into it. And that's why the importance of, of knowledge of self, knowing your environment, right? And also understanding that you're connected to something much larger. Yep. You know? Yep. You know, so awareness of the big picture. And all of us, you know, we get bogged down. Sometimes we get into the minutiae of this and that and so forth, you know? Yeah. Um, but you got to breathe in and out, right? So being able to take a step back, breathe, see the big picture, I think it it is helpful. And I think that many people find this through, they could do it through meditation, they do it through uh, yoga, they do it through, you know, a variety of different means. But I think that anything that brings about clarity, I think is helpful. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. You mentioning the big picture also makes me think about the images that were just dropped from the James Webb telescope. Mm. And as far as like the biggest picture and also the oldest picture, it's not only showing the expanse of how large this entire thing is that we exist in, but then also it's kind of like a visual time machine because you're looking back in time, all these Mm -hmm. millions upon millions upon millions (laughs) upon millions upon millions of years. Yes. And then knowing how many galaxies and billions of galaxies there are and billions of stars in those galaxies and then billions of planets and then 
billions of planets that have potential of life. It's like the understanding that the experience that we're having, depending upon who you are and how you interpret that, can expand or it could contract. But in either scenario and case, it all boils down to what you're doing in the moment that you have and how you're manifesting your best version of yourself to maximize the experience that you have in this whole thing. Mm, yes, yes, absolutely. No question about it. You know, seize the moment. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, so all of that as tangential as it may seem or feel, it all really connects to just a lot of the philosophies that, you know, this man has talked about and conveyed through mm-hmm. his m- movies, through his writing, through his interviews and through his martial arts, being able to develop things like the one inch punch mm. where you can take something that is a seemingly physical improbability where you're only an inch from a person, but yet you can put a cave into their chest and send them across a room is <laughs> 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 <It is> outrageous. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then at the same time, how that can also be applicable to mental conflict and engagement in mm. other with other people um, and, and within yourself too. And I think that a film that does a good job of encapsulating all of that is a scene in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill series mm-hmm. where the bride played by Uma Thurman is buried alive. And she's then meditating and reflecting on her trainings with Pai Mei, a grandmaster that has the long white beard that he keeps whipping over his shoulder. And um, (laughs) the only way that she can get out of that scenario was to go within and reflect on her growth and her journey and her training as a martial artist. And one specific training was the one inch punch and how it was her most difficult training of all the things that he was putting her through. That was the training that became her salvation. Wow. And so <laughs> there's so many layers to that that can be just generally applicable. So, so, you know, shout out to Tarantino for conveying that through his film in, in that way, because for me, that landed the concept of the one inch punch and, and gave me more understanding and grounding for seeing Bruce do it in the clips of him doing it in demonstrations and stuff like that that you could find on YouTube and everything like just like oh okay I I can also see the philosophy within it too beyond just being this really cool punch that you can do from a short distance. Would you connect that with the idea in the Enter the Dragon film we need emotional content Mm -hmm. not anger yeah yeah Yeah. most definitely because the idea of focus Yeah, thinking about Kill Bill, if Uma Thurman's character had panicked in that moment and, you know, is buried alive and starts freaking out, then she's losing the little amount of oxygen that she has available within the casket or the box that she's in. And she's not really then going to be able to focus enough to be able to get out of that situation. But instead, she remained emotionally content and (laughs) made sure that the energy that could be used for anger was instead used for strength Mm. and 
busted out of that situation so yeah that's probably the third spoiler alert now but we didn't even give an alert but that's not the end of the movie for anybody right. who hasn't seen kill bill yeah but, there's yeah. plenty more there's plenty more in there yeah no 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 worries no yeah. worries you know one other thing that i didn't mention about bruce is that in the late 1950s he was a, a cha-cha champion he's oh, the wow. cha-cha so he could dance yeah right and you could see that in some of his actually whenever he really is getting the groove in his fighting there's there's a bit of that footwork where you're like oh, okay okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, well, a well, he, there, yeah. well you know at the same time he was also a big fan of Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah he also loved Sugar Ray Robinson mm-hmm. thought he was phenomenal yeah you know so he was a student you know like Mike Tyson Bruce Lee was a would watch film footage yeah. you know he was an admirer of of the art. Mm-hmm. of engagement yeah right and so the idea of of getting in the ring or whatever situation is like a dance yeah right mm-hmm. so he he already had that sensibility you know mm-hmm. he could work with that yeah yeah no question <laughs> that's yeah. cool and thinking about folks who like to dance or cut a rug earlier we mentioned your brother neil <laughs> <laughs> my uncle yes. um, and how big of a Bruce Lee, or at least, well, I should say, you know, Enter the Dragon for for the context of the trio of us and and how we often Mm -hmm. quote that movie together. For those who may not know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is my uncle and my dad's younger brother. And we often in family events, you know, whether we're getting together, doesn't matter when, you know, Thanksgiving, Father's Day, you know, just because in the summer, whatever the case may be, somehow along the way, (laughs) a quote or two from this movie will come up. But also, I think that don't you use one of the names from the movie as an affectionate term for one another? Yes, but we'll we'll keep keep that to ourselves. (laughs) But yeah, so that shows how deep this movie and this connection and all um, certainly has. (laughs) Absolutely. And and, you know, the other thing that I think your uncle appreciated about Bruce Mm -hmm. uh, was the fact that he was also a a consummate athlete. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And your uncle was captain of the wrestling team. Mm -hmm. He, He was a really great wrestler in both high school as well as in college. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So these movies and especially Into the Dragon, but the entire Bruce Lee catalog has definitely been something that I'm thankful to have been immersed in because of you and your interest and experience and how Bruce was very informative for you growing up as a teenager and also as an adult, even still to this day. These philosophies are most definitely applicable, but then also how it connects with other spiritual guides and leaders and thinkers and how that that's also informed us as individuals as well too. It it, kind of, as you mentioned before, you know, opens a door and there's an opportunity to walk as deeply into the room as you would like. And, you know, to have that first entrance be through somebody as cool as Bruce Lee Mm, um, mm. It's pretty awesome. So, yeah, definitely thank you for that. <laughs> hey, thank you, uh, Papa, for this conversation and for this podcast. It's been wonderful and continues to be wonderful working with you. And I'm um, looking forward to our next conversation. Love you, Dad. Uh, love you too, Pop.